0: Okay, before we uh, get started in talking about Advent, uh, Mark mentioned a minute ago that uh, what a world we live in where we, at one level, we we have hope as Christians and we have joy, but then we read the news and we see shootings and uh, I just heard with the last shooting that Columbine is no longer in the top 10. And that just really saddened me that that... This is part of our culture. It's hard for me to understand it. It's hard for me to grasp it. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to stop and pray for our tired world because our world is tired, isn't it? So, Father, I do lift up our tired world. Lord, I I can hear your pride when you finish creation and you look down and say, it is very good. And yet, Lord, now... Uh, We're tired. And sin has ravaged us, torn apart our nations, our governments, and, um, Lord, brought all kinds of evil into our lives. And we so desperately need you. So, Lord, I pray for our tired world. I pray that this Christmas season, this Advent season, I pray that you would be uh, more than ever before in the history of the world. I pray that you would be very gracious and merciful, and show your glory to these tired people around the world, Lord, and reap the harvest, bring in many, many people to you, and help us to be a part of that in our own little county right here. Thank you for the privilege of that. In your son's name, amen. Okay, Advent starts next Sunday, formally. Uh, first Sunday of Advent is next Sunday. So, last year, we, when we kind of debriefed the Christmas season, we thought one of the things that would be helpful for you is to take a little bit of time and talk to you about Advent, what is it, and why is it important to honor it, and what does it accomplish? So I want to take some time and do that. But first, I, um, I just got back, Nancy and I did, last, yesterday afternoon from Boston. I was gone all last week to uh, uh, Evangelical Theological Society meetings, Institute for Biblical Research, Society of Biblical Literature, American Academy of Religion. I know, it makes you all just want to come and join me, doesn't it? Here are theological papers being read all day long. Ooh. <laughs> and so I was out in Boston for that, and my daughter lives there. So Nancy joined us this week, and uh, we stayed with our daughter, uh, Molly, and her uh, husband, Dave, and her uh, daughter, Elle, who is my granddaughter, 15 months and um, it was such a sweet time. It's just hard to imagine, um, hard to believe how sweet it could be. In the morning, we woke up, uh, you know, being grandparents, we wake up before the kids do. And, uh, but they don't wake up before the grandkids. So the grandparents and the grandkids wakes up, but not the kids. So Nancy goes, you get the picture, right? So Nancy goes into Elle's room and gets Elle and brings her into our bedroom. And, and she just snuggles with us for 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And we just had a great time. Just a fantastic time of this 15-month-old climbing all over, talking, grabbing her nose, all kinds of things like that. And so we go downstairs, and uh, my daughter says, uh, did you get L? said, yeah. We've been snuggling with her for 45 minutes to an hour. And she said, well, she never snuggles with me in the morning. Now, my outside voice is like, oh, I'm so sorry. My inside voice is, yes! <laughs> 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 Too bad. <laughs> so we did that every morning. And uh, it became a habit. All week long we were snuggling with her, and it was just so fun having her there. So then yesterday we got up and left at 5 o'clock for the airport. She's asleep. So around 7 or 7.30, somewhere in there. My daughter texts us and says, Elle is in your room looking for you. Now, that's a small picture of Advent. It's just a small picture. And everything in me wanted to turn the plane around and head back. But I can't wait to see her the next time. The eagerness, the anticipation, the expectation of seeing her um, after spending a week with her is it's just a small glimpse of what Advent is all about. How many of you come from traditions that celebrate Advent? Let me see. So about half of you maybe. Okay. Some of you come from traditions where Advent is celebrated in a more liturgical format, uh, which, by the way, is really wonderful. If you didn't understand it when you were in that part of life, go back and read the, the liturgy and why things they do the things they do, and it has a very rich meaning. Some of you were, grew up with Advent where it wasn't liturgical. That's more my background, but it was still a, a tradition, something that we did. Advent is very important because we we begin, starting next Sunday, you're going to see the, the whole sanctuary start to transform as we move closer and closer to Christmas Eve. And um, what you're going to see is symbols all along the way. You're going to see, for instance, an Advent candle. And it's really nice. The traditions that we celebrate are nice. It gives us a warm glow inside, a good feeling. But I would challenge you that there's many things that are much deeper and below that that are worth paying attention to, that are really worth the time to explore and look at what is going on during Christmas. I'm going to start with a metaphor. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about we see through a glass darkly or dimly or a mirror dimly. It's hard for us to see. In another place, he uses the metaphor of a veil. It's hard for us to see clearly because of sin and the curse. And then he says one day, uh, what happened at the veil when at the crucifixion, the veil was torn in the temple wasn't it? Which gives us a picture of unhindered access to the Father now. And so he says that we see in this glass darkly. It's hard to see. And um, one day what we really want is for that glass to shatter. We want it to be gone so then we can see face to face. We can see true spiritual reality. And Advent just gives us a glimpse of this. It's just a glimpse. We were in Boston, as I said, and so... um, uh, because I was at downtown for the conferences, I walked all over the city. didn't take the subway. I like walking. And so I walked all over the city. And I noticed they're putting up the Christmas decorations. And I, I, could, I could feel over several days the shift in the, uh, the, the atmosphere as people got excited. Okay? What is it about Christmas, the season, the holiday season? What is it about this holiday season that excites us, lights up? Pretty colors. It gives us a glimpse through that dark glass of reality, of what we're created for. It gives us a sense of what we're made for. That's what. And so I'm going to suggest to you that when we celebrate Advent and when we start creating traditions in our lives and in our families, what we're doing is we're taking that glass. And for just a brief moment, it becomes clear, and we can get a glimpse. Just a glimpse of what's coming. One thing that's true of all humans is we have not yet arrived, and we know it. All I have to do is read the newspaper articles, the things that are there that are so shameful. I mean, how many, how many accusations of sexual abuse have there been in the last five weeks? 5,000? This is incredible what's coming out. This is the world we live in. And so Christmas is one of those times where when done well, we capture a glimpse. Just for a moment, the dark glass becomes clear and Christ comes to us. And we can see clearly. And we can feel the hope. We tingle with it. We get excited with it. So, what I want to do, where I want to end up today, is talk to you about developing those traditions. I don't care if you're married, don't care if you're single, don't care if you have kids, if you're a parent, grandparent, doesn't matter to me. Develop the traditions. But first, let's kind of walk our way there. Let's talk just a little bit about what it is we're looking at in um, Advent. The word Advent just means appearing, it's appearing of the Lord. And um, we don't know what it's like to have been on the other side of Christ's birth, looking forward to it. I'm going to read you a story out of Luke 2. Luke 2 is a famous um, story of Jesus' birth, which we often read. Where the shepherds and all of that, that's what comes out of Luke 2. But in the middle of this is a story about a man who was waiting. Luke 2, verse 22. When the time for, for the, came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. That's a command in Exodus. So as soon as God brought them out of Egypt, he said, you're to consecrate your firstborn to the Lord. And to also to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law, a pair of doves or a young pigeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. Okay, pause. At this time in world history, the, uh, about four or 500 years before this, the uh, southern kingdom had been demolished and the Israelites had been scattered around the world. They're, uh, they're in, they were deported and then he brought them back together again. But they knew. They knew that that was not the answer the blessing of Deuteronomy 29 and 30 because the glory of the Lord never reappeared in the temple. They knew that they would come back from exile when the glory of the Lord appeared. And so for 450, 500 years, the glory of the Lord had not appeared. So they understood that they were still under indictment by the Lord and that they were still officially uh, in exile They had not been brought back yet. So now they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting for the Lord to come back. And then the Lord gets really silent. Ezra and Nehemiah, I think, were the last two books written. Um, And then all of a sudden, for 450 years, not a word, not a whisper from the Lord. Generations come, generations go, and they're waiting and they're waiting. We have a little bit of that while we're waiting for the Lord's return. But their very survival and hope depended upon the Messiah coming back. We don't often think that way. We think we've got it pretty good, quite honestly. We don't have that same sense of urgency that we cannot wait for the Lord to come back. I can't wait for the Lord to bring life to this tired earth to deal with sin and evil I can't wait for him to come back and deal with, with men who abuse women who, with dictators who abuse their people with rich people who and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with rich don't hear me wrong but who abuse the poor there are those in the world by the way by God's grace none here I can't wait for him to come back and make it all right but their very survival dependent on it. So here's this man, Simeon, in the temple his whole life waiting, waiting for the Lord. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah. So moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon saw that, he took Jesus in his arms, and he praised God. And here's what he said, Sovereign Lord, As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. You may now dismiss your servant in peace. I'm ready to go be home with you. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Your salvation, your rescue, your deliverance. You came back for us. That's the story of communion. You see, Advent automatically points us to Lent, which comes next year, early next year. You came back for us. My eyes have seen your deliverance, your salvation, your rescue, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. He understood that God cared about all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. By the way, he's talking about you and me. Right here. Most of us are not Jewish here. He's talking about us. Simeon knew that when he held that baby, God had now fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And the glory of your people Israel. The glory of your people Israel. So here's a man who is waiting expectantly. He's waiting eagerly. Okay? Something that's a quality that we often miss in our advent. We enjoy the traditions because they make us feel good. But that's different than cultivating a heart that is eager for the Lord to come back. A heart that says, I can't wait for you to come back, Lord. How long, O oh Lord, do we have to wait? So I'm going to read to you some of the verses. I just took a sampling that have the word eager, eagerness, something like that in them. Listen to this idea of eagerness because it inf- it impacts us as a congregation in the way we think about each other and the Lord. Starting in Luke chapter 2, where I just was. um, Well, it can't be Luke chapter 2. It has to be the end of Luke. So, at the end of Luke, (laughs) he said to them, this is Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, by the way. So, just before he uh, celebrates Passover with the disciples, he says to the disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Do we think about God in terms of his eagerness to be with us? I can't wait to see my granddaughter again. In fact, I can't wait to see my daughter again. And then on the way home, I find out my son's here. So I can't wait to get home and see my son and his wife. There's an eagerness inside me as a dad and a granddad to want to be with them. Do you ever think of the Lord that way? So Jesus said, just before he is betrayed and executed, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That represents God's heart. He wants to meet you where you are. He looks forward to it regularly. We are the delight of God. You ever think of that? Acts 17. I love this passage. Completely whole different perspective. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. You see, Paul had gone to Thessalonica, and they didn't like Thessalonica, so they mistreated him and beat him up, so he goes to Berea. So it says the Jews there were of more noble character, for they received Paul's message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day. When you, uh, when you think of this, do you feel that eagerness? You know, Peter says, like newborn babies, long for this. Cultivate a heart that wants to know your own story. That's what this is. This is your story right here. Your life, your journey has been folded into the journey of God's journey. This is your journey. We're getting ready to start the year. Read the Bible next year. You all have a phone. There's a free app somewhere out there for it. Read the Bible. Somebody said to me, I'm going to start reading now. That way I have a five-week jump. That way when I miss next year, I'll be caught up still. It's good. Wise planning. I read the Bible every year. Every year I read it from cover to cover. Read the Bible. Know your own story. It's okay to get angry about things in the Bible. It's okay to get confused. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to rejoice. All of that is in there. It's a mess. It's a messy world. And what you're going to find all the way through is that God stepping into our messy world is itself messy. Messy because he's straightening it out. We have done a disservice to you in the west. We have so focused on individual salvation for many of you, that's what you think of when you think of grace and you think of the gospel. But the story's not about you. It's about all of creation. You see the gospel is the entire creation. The entire creation In fact, Paul moves into that in Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, whatever is happening in your life right now is insignificant compared to eternity. He calls these minor afflictions and he was beat to death, shipwrecked, 40 times, was the punishment, being flogged 40 times. That was a death sentence. Several times he was flogged 39 times. Now there's finding a loophole. (laughs) Okay? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation, for the creation waits in eager expectation. The trees, the rocks... The planets, the animals, the creation waits in your expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Then he goes on a couple of verses later. Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You see, when we decided to sin, there was a big cost. It cost everything that God created. Animals pay the price. All of creation pays the price. And not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await redemption as well. So all of creation, everything you see, is waiting for us. Their their message is really simple. Hey, humans, get your act together. Because there's not a thing they can do about it. It has to wait for us. 1 Corinthians 4, or uh, uh, First Corinthians 1, he goes on. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him, this is the beginning of 1 Corinthians, for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. You ever think about the fact, now think about where we've come. God eagerly wants to be with us. All of creation eagerly wants us to finish the process of redemption. Okay? And then on top of that, God has given us every spiritual gift we need as a church. He's given it to us. It's sitting right here. Everything we need to to have DCC grow up into likeness of Christ is sitting right here. You ever think that way? It's right here the treasures that are buried in our own church right here. We call those spiritual gifts. So how does he conclude? Therefore, eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus to be revealed. Wait for it. Wait for it. Cultivate that heart of, I really want the Lord to come back. I can't wait for him to fix the mess. I love this one in Second Corinthians 9. Um, he was just talking to him in chapter 8 about how great it is that they've decided to give an offering to the people of Macedonia. So one church is in Greece is uh, collecting an offering for those in Macedonia because there is a famine and they're starving. There's no need for me to write to you about the service to the Lord's people for I already know of your eagerness to help. I already know of your eagerness and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians. Telling them that you are ready to give. Your enthusiasm has stirred them to faithfulness in action. I just came back, as I told you, from all these society meetings. One of the things I do is I have coffee, breakfast, lunch. My day is packed, not only with hearing theological papers read, I learn a lot, but also meeting with people, peers around the country, around the world, actually, come together and meeting with them. And you know what I do? I brag about you. I brag about you because of your zeal, your eagerness to help. You should hear some of the stories I hear about churches and elder boards and staff and things like that, which we don't have any of that. I have a bunch of people that somewhere along the way I fell in love with. It's you. And I love your eagerness. That's what he's doing there. Galatians 5, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. So we've gone right from we eagerly desire to help one another who's in trouble to together we eagerly long for this righteousness this this time when God is going to put to rights all that is wrong it's coming it's coming do you really believe that it's coming it's going to happen That's why Paul says what's happening right now are momentary light afflictions compared to what's coming. It is really coming. So don't be satisfied with seeing an Advent candle lit and you feel the warm glow in your heart. Don't be satisfied with that. Dig a little deeper. See that lit and say, this represents the very core of my being in Jesus. There is true hope that he's coming back. And he is going to change and repair and fix all that's broken. That's what righteousness means. You know the word righteousness is the same word for justice in Greek? The justice of God is going to fix all the things that we struggle with. Do you believe that? This is what Advent is all about. And finally... Philippians 3:20 Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there his name is Jesus Our citizenship is in heaven you see Jesus is coming to us because he longs to be with us He longs to be with us That's what advent is all about It's far richer far deeper far more pervasive than a series of traditions. Traditions are important, but if the, traditions, if, they, if the traditions shield us from the reality of the expectation and the hope, then the traditions have done something wrong. We don't want our expectations, to our traditions to do that. We want them to be rich and full of life so that it begins to make sense to you every step of the way. Some of you have been here. You're going to see the Advent candle. You're going to see the decorations. You're going to see the canopy of lights. All those are there to help you grasp, as we move to a Christmas, the reality of what's about to come. We're seeing in the world dark, a glass darkly, and when we celebrate Advent correctly that glass becomes clear just for a second. And we can hope. Okay, let's shift it just for a moment and talk about traditions. If you don't have a tradition in your family, create one. Create one. Our tradition in our family was pretty simple for 25 years. We had an Advent candle. We lit it. We wanted to involve all the senses so the kids as they were growing up, they could feel the heat, see the light. One kid would light the candle, one kid would snuff it out, and we'd have hot chocolate or something like that. All the senses were involved. We would do a devotion. So all throughout the week, all throughout Advent, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we would light a candle, we would read a short devotion, pray together, snuff the candle out, we're done. It's that simple. But it was something we did every year. And then every Sunday, we had a bigger thing. By the way, out on the Out on the table there is a whole bunch of Advent resources. I had you get several so that you can look at them. Here's one. It's not out there because the first service bought them all up. (laughs) So you have to wait. They're on order. They'll be here next Sunday. The Best Christmas pageant ever. How many of you have read this story? Oh, what a shame. Only a third of you. Okay. We read this to our kids every weekend, every Sunday. The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. All I had to do was read that, and my kids did what you just did. They all started to giggle because they knew the story. I read it every year. They lied, and they stole, and they smoked cigars, even the girls. They talked dirty and hit little kids, and they cussed their teachers. They took the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord in vain, and they set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old, broken-down toolhouse the tool house burned right down to the ground. And I think that surprised even the herdmans. They set fire to things all the time, but that was the first time they managed to burn down a whole building. (laughs) I guess it was an accident. I don't suppose they woke up that morning and said to one another, hey, let's go burn down Fred Shoemaker's tool house. Well, maybe they did. That's all you get. It's the story of Christmas in very accessible language. Find a tradition. Create one. I don't care if you're single, married, if you got kids, no kids, if you're a dad, mom, grandparent, it doesn't matter. If you're divorced, it doesn't matter to me. Find a tradition that starting next Sunday you can cultivate an eager heart for the Lord and a heart that brings your kids.